0: Last week, we started talking about work and the challenges that work offers in the world and how the Bible is meant, uh, teaches us and, and shapes how we work. Uh, since we're talking about work, I have the opportunity to read a paragraph again to you that I have read before. This is from Studs Terkel. Studs Terkel was a columnist in Chicago, worked for a couple of newspapers throughout his career. And in 1974, he inter- uh, interviewed a number of people about their jobs, and he wrote a book called called Working, and this is the first paragraph from Studs Studs Terkel's book. If you're looking for a baby name, by the way, I can (laughs) suggest nothing better than Studs. That'd be good. Here's what he wrote. This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well to the body. It is about ulcers as well as about accidents, about shouting matches as well as about fist fights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. It is about a search too this book for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality too is part of the quest. To be remembered was the wish, spoken and unspoken, of the heroes and heroines of this book. You don't have to be on the job very long before it seems to me you encounter this contradiction: two, two seemingly uh, opposite things that are true. On the one hand, you discover that work at times is really hard. It's it's really frustrating. It's dehumanizing. At the same time, while you're, you may slug to a job that you don't really like most of the time, you have inexplicably the same longing within you that what you do at that job would have some sort of real significance, that it would really make a difference in the world that we, that we live in. That's, that's the paradox of, of work, isn't it? Uh, Seventy years ago, Dorothy Sayers uh, condemned the church. She said that the church has not helped people think very carefully about work. And in fact, it hurts not just the church uh, and not just the working world, but it help, hurts the church too. L- listen to what she said. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to res- understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? Uh, we're trying to talk, uh, address that deficiency in these weeks before Resurrection Sunday as we think together about work. Now, if you're visiting our church, our normal pattern is to move systematically through books of the Bible. We've gone through uh, Leviticus recently, we finished, and, and after Resurrection Sunday, we'll start in the book of Acts. In the meantime, we're taking a look at what the Bible says about work, and we're moving through the story of the Bible. Um, how does work work How does work work in the world that God originally created? What was his design? What happens now that the world has fallen? How does work function? How should we think about it? What did Christ do to redeem work? And then last, uh, on uh, Palm Sunday, Lord of we're going to talk about work in the world that is to uh, come. Uh, We started last week about uh, work at the beginning, the very beginning. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2. It tells us that we work because God works. Uh, the Bible's is the story of how God formed and filled, in Genesis 1 and 2, the world that he called into existence. And then he puts the man and the woman in this uh, place, and he tells them to represent him and to enlarge and extend and continue his reign. Uh, the, Genesis 2 is very specific. God planted a garden... And in the garden he put a man and a woman. Now the garden had specific boundaries. And I think part of the, uh, uh, the instructions in the book of Genesis are that Adam and Eve are supposed to make the garden grow. They're supposed to spread it around the world. The book of Habakkuk talks about the fact that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is to be this ever-expanding, by God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, this ever-expanding knowledge of who He is and, and understanding and awe of His glory as Adam and Eve do their work and the society that they will create. Now, my hope is that as, you were, uh, as we, we talked about that, you were able to think about your place in this mandate, this spreading the knowledge of, of God and His care uh, around the world. Uh, Whatever you do, whether it's paid labor or unpaid labor, full-time, part-time, mother-of-young-children time, time, which is an entirely different schedule. Um, Regardless of what the hours you work, uh, regardless of your job, whether you're a banker or a janitor or an accountant or a dental hygienist, you have a role to play in this cultivation of the world that God has made. Now, that's, uh, that original design for work is described in Genesis 1 and 2, but Studs Terkel is, is right, isn't he, when he talks about work? Work can be violent. You fight against circumstances. You fight against uh, broken systems. You fight against incompetence. At work, you fight against your own desires and inclinations. Uh, you, 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 you battle that so that you can do what you think you have to in order to survive And this morning, I want to talk about life at work in this broken world. Why is it so broken? And how does the brokenness particularly shape how we think about work? Um, every philosophy, every religion has some explanation for why the world is as it is. Why the world doesn't seem to work the way it's supposed to work. And the Bible's answer to that question, what's wrong with the world, is told in the very first few pages of the Bible. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to a very familiar passage, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Why is the world the way it is? It has to do with the introduction of sin into the world, which is the story we find in Genesis 3. Again, it's just in the first few pages of your Bible. And when you get there, your Bible might, like mine, have this title. Uh, My Bible says it's The Fall. Uh, Maybe you could call it The Rebellion. That might be a good phrase. Here's the Bible's explanation of what's wrong with the world. You're very familiar uh, with this story, I know, but it's so important in the Bible, it, it deserves another reading, another hearing. So follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 3, if you would, please. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. And immediately you, should, you, start and you stop and you think to yourself, serpent, who's this? Where'd he come from? What's he doing here in this story? As the Bible unfolds, we'll discover that uh, the serpent is God's enemy and he attacks God through his surrogates, through his image bearers, human beings. Because he hates God, he hates everything that represents God, so he hates human beings as well. He plays a role in the Bible, but even this verse tells us it's somewhat of a limited role. Here's why. Where did he come from? The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. God made him. This is the story of God's creatures acting in rebellion against their creator. This is not an equal war. This is not one God, a good God, and one God, a bad God, fighting against one another. This is God who made the world and the world in rebellion against him. Now that that plot line should sound somewhat familiar to you. We have a lot of stories in our culture of of the things that we make turning on us or not working the way we want. In 2011, one of the best selling novels was a novel by, uh, it was called uh, RoboPocalypse. And Apocalypse was about uh, how a man uh, created a machine, it was an accident actually, and do this machine with artificial intelligence and the computer became uh, self-aware and then decided evaluating the world as it was to eliminate human beings and thus save the ecosystem. This computer we made turned on us. Or, even more uh, uh, endemic or even more embedded here, think about Godzilla. Godzilla, that terrible, huge dragon lizard. He first appeared in 1954 in Japan. Japan was still reeling in 1954 from the nuclear accidents of, uh, uh, not accidents, excuse me, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, Godzilla is inextricably linked to that historical event. In fact, that's Godzilla's origin story, isn't it? Somehow he came from that atomic bomb. Either the radiation created Godzilla or Godzilla was embedded in the earth and the atomic bomb woke him up. Uh, Either way, uh, he is, as he walks around, a symbol of what an atomic bomb does. He's an unstoppable force that wreaks absolute destruction. And therefore, Godzilla here isn't, he's, a, he's a warning, he's a cautionary tale. Be careful what you create, because you might not be able to, to control it. We're going to see this, I think, more and more. This is uh, the, the theme of a lot of horror movies, isn't it? Some genetic experiment goes terribly wrong. Some invention uh, turns and, 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 and destroys humanity. This is warnings. Be careful what you make. It's about the uh, warnings about the pride of, of human beings. Well, this story is a little bit different than that. This is indeed creatures rebelling against their creator. But in this story, what you're supposed to see here first is the injustice of this rebellion. Oh, there's this God, and he made this perfect world. This man and this woman and this this serpent, this this being, had God made everything for them. It was was perfect, it was ideal, and they decide that they they don't want it. They'd rather make their own way, and all the destruction that's entailed in that. Oh, This story differs from Godzilla, too, a little bit, in in that the the creature is rebelling against the creator, but the creator is not powerless against the creature. This is a serpent, but it's not Godzilla the serpent. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is how God uh, pushes down and fixes and recreates what his rebellious creatures destroyed. Well, that's verse 1. If I stop like this every time in the verses, of the, well, I'm going to be reading till Tuesday. So I'm going to start again, and I won't stop until I'm done. So, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man said, the woman you put here with me, uh, 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 she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now the crux of the matter here. The, the important issue in this temptation is in verse 5. Where the Bible says, where Satan says to the woman. If you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now, knowing here is not just, it's not just understanding something. It's not just having an intellectual appreciation for it, grasping it, or even experiencing it. The word knowing here means uh, determining good and evil deciding what's good and what's evil, establishing what's good and what's evil, doing it for yourself. This is the shape that this rebellion takes. You determine for yourself what is good, that is, what will benefit you, what will make you happy, what will satisfy you, and you determine for yourself what is bad, what's going to hurt you, what you are not going to like, what's going to dissatisfy you. Now, up to this point in the Bible, who has determined what's good and what's evil? God does. Over and over again in Genesis 1, doesn't it say, this is good, this is good, this is good. God has the right to determine what's good and evil. And when he finds something that's not good, namely the aloneness of the man, he has the right to fix it himself. He determines he's going to fix it, and he did by providing uh, the woman for the man. By eating this fruit, Eve and then Adam were saying to God, I will decide for myself what is good and what I must avoid. That is true. That's the determination behind every sin you commit. You are going to decide for yourself what is beneficial to you, regardless of what God says. You're probably familiar enough, either you have them or you're familiar enough with little children to understand the phrase terrible twos. Right? This is what happens with little children. They grow into this independence. And what do they say, their favorite line? I will do it myself. Of course, they're little children, they can't even say that phrase properly while they're demanding that I do it myself. Well, if you're going to rebel, be grammatical, okay? Right? Okay? Uh, I, we, are, we are cosmic toddlers who say to God, I will do this myself. I will determine for myself what is good and what is evil. Isaiah the prophet in in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to the people who call good evil and call evil good. Think for a minute about those sins that you find yourself embracing over and over again. Aren't, Aren't those because you have determined that that's good for you? That is a good that you want and you will take and you will pursue. That's why people continue an addictive behavior. Objectively, looking at people who are engaged in addictive behavior, it's foolish unless you're in it. It doesn't look so foolish when you're in it because you're, you're, you're going after what's good, what will satisfy you, what will make you happy. And to stop is evil, it's hurtful, it's bad that's the deception of that sort of behavior as genesis 3 continues here god pushes back doesn't he against their rebellion this is one of the ways to describe what happens here the man and the woman they lose their close relationship with god and god pushes back in these curses this active punishment that god unleashes We talked about curses a few weeks ago from the book of Leviticus. Again, up to this point in time in the book of Genesis, God has blessed. That's all he's done. He has blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. And now he is going to curse. And that curse section is in verses 14 through 19 in particular. And and God curses, notice in human beings, two realms, love and work. Love and work. Love in the sense that childbearing is going to be painful. And marriage is going to be hard. There's going to be a a conflict in in marriage. And then work in verses 17 through 19. There's a wonderful uh, coincidence in the English language. It's actually not just in English. Several other languages have this. They they use uh, English. We use one word to describe painful toil and childbearing. Right? Labor. Labor, Both of those cursed here. Um, Look here at verses uh, 17 through 19 and and all the hard words that are there. Painful toil is in verse 17. Thorns, thistles, verse 18. By the sweat of your brow, verse 19. And then this returning to the ground, death. Uh, farming here is, this is the image that uh, stands for all work. So he's put yourself uh, uh, in the image of a farmer. No one alive today knows what it was like to cultivate the ground uh, back uh, in, in the garden. And it's hard for us to conceive how radically different this world is from the world that God made. Uh, we're in the midst of the, the change of seasons, aren't we? wonderfully, blessedly so. Yesterday was a gift from heaven. Summer's over apparently now uh, with the temperature out this morning. Um, pretty soon, because it's spring, tractors are going to start driving up and down my road in front of our house. In fact, one uh, did yesterday. I'm not sure what it was doing or what kind of vehicle it was. It's embarrassing to admit that. You live in Manor Township. What a shame I am to my home. But anyway, it was some sort of farm equipment driving up the road. Uh, and and uh, 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 farmers uh, will be planting, irrigating, eventually they'll be into a harvest. Uh, if you drive around, uh, you've already sensed <laughs> that there's, they have spread fertilizer already, and um, uh, wor- the work is going to begin. No one was doing that in February. You couldn't get into the fields in February, there was snow on the ground. Uh, It was too cold, uh, uh, not enough light for crops to grow. It it wouldn't make sense to be in the field in February trying to get crops uh, to grow. What if the difference between the world God made and the world we experience is like the difference between farming in February and farming in April? What if it's that significant? What if, compared to the way it was when God made the world, it's never spring, it's never summer, it's only always February. Every farmer has to work that hard. Can you imagine trying to grow crops in February, what you would have to do What if the world God made before this rebellion was constantly, what if the Genesis 2 world in the Garden of Eden was like April and May all the time, blooming flowers everywhere? What if that's the way it was, the world that God originally made? And creation as we know it now, as beautiful it is, is just February by comparison, brown and gray. You, you could put this image onto any, any career here. In the world that God originally made, every 2x4 that you buy is perfectly straight. Every set of instructions for every new piece of equipment is in perfectly written English and includes stunningly clear pictures. Every blade that you use to cut is always perfectly uh, sharp. Every student walks into your classroom. They walk in neat rows, into your classroom when the bell rings. They don't have any notes for you because they never need to go to the doctor and they've never been sick. And they they put their backpacks away, they hang up their jackets, they get their books, they sit down at their desks, and when, when, when class is ready to start, they look to you and they say, Oh, teacher, oh, teacher, wise one, teach us about fractions we long to know about participles. Teach us about the local county government. It is beautiful for us, and you are wise. Instruct us, oh teacher. That's probably not the school that you attend or you teach at, right? Uh, is, is that how your building projects go? Every two by four is perfectly straight. Every set of instructions is always right. Huh. The world is, is broken. broken. Romans 8 says the world is groaning under the weight of our rebellion, and we we feel it. We feel it. Work for all of its promises comes with a huge amount of frustration. Every job that you do, even if you love it, there are parts of it that you hate. There's parts of it that you have to do in order to enable you to do the things that you want to do. Tim Keller says he notices a, a generational difference in this. Tim Keller is a baby boomer, and uh, so he watched his parents and their peers, uh, the World War II Great Depression generation, and how they approached work. Uh, for them, they were grateful to have, he says, any sort of job, any sort of work, and you went and you worked at your company and you stayed there and you didn't complain and you were happy to have it because it was work that brought money home. Now in contrast to that, he says that he watches his children and he watches uh, the younger generations in his church and he says what many of them are looking for is not just work, but they're looking for the job, the perfect job, the ideal occupation and the ideal company where there is never any frustration and never any challenges and never anything that makes them quit. That is a paralyzing attitude. Actually, both generations are a little bit out of balance. It's not wrong to want to have a career that is satisfying and fulfilling, but it's naive to think that in this broken world, you're going to have a career without this cursed brokenness. This is normal in this life that we have. Now, what I want to do right now is I want to shift a little bit and I want to talk about how we experience this frustration, how this curse works into our work, how it shows up. And, and there's a couple of different directions that I want to, want to focus on. Um, first, I want to talk about frustrations that we encounter from the outside in. Frustrations from the outside in. Because this world is broken, we experience this just in the atmosphere, of, uh, in the culture in which we live, when we work. There is the fall, I, it seems to me in Genesis 3, introduced this division, this disconnect, in the way that we think about work, and the way we experience work. Just, let me just mention three of them. Uh, first of all, reality is disconnected from our dreams. Reality is disconnected from our dreams. Are you doing today what you thought in eighth grade would be an ideal life? Do you have the career that you were thinking about um, when you were a, a senior in high school and you thought about what was going to come and, and the work that you wanted to do? Or even when you're at work, are, are you performing the way that you envisioned yourself? At some point in time, you were in preparation for this job, or you walk onto the job site for the first time and you think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to master this job, and I'm going to impress somebody, and I'm going to get the promotion that, I, that I, I'm looking forward to, and I'm going to have a career. And now you just have a job? Th- there's this, this disconnect between how you perform or maybe even what you perform and your aspirations, what you wanted to be true. Everybody encounters that in some way. Second, uh, work is frustration because frustrating because of the, the disconnection uh, between our labor and the finished product of our work. Our labor sometimes is disconnected from the finished product. This is especially true in our industrialized age. This past Thursday was the 158th birthday of Frederick Taylor, and Frederick Taylor was the pioneer of what's called scientific management. Frederick Taylor was an efficiency expert, and he taught manufacturers, he taught people who uh, make things to break down their process, their, their, their manufacturing process, into smaller, easily repeatable steps. It was a brilliant move of efficiency. It radically increased Productivity, but it also shattered the connection people feel between what they do and what actually comes out of the factory. See, before Frederick Taylor, people worked maybe in home businesses, most of them, or in maybe smaller factories where there was a, a close connection between the, the, uh, the uh, labor and the finished product. You saw what you made. You started with wood, and you made a cradle. That's the pro- You went through that whole process, and there was this connection between your labor and this finished product. Taylor believed, though, and he was right, that it was much more efficient to have workers, a lot of workers, involved in small parts of the process. Um, It brought unskilled workers into the labor force and it it dramatically decreased prices and led to uh, all kinds of marvelous inventions that we have and and products and and cheap prices for them. It's wonderful, but it's dehumanizing. All day long, if you're responsible for putting five bolts, um, five nuts under five bolts, that's all you do all day long. Or if, if all day long, all you do is inflate tires. Or all day long, if all you do is attach doors, you spend day after day, year after year doing that work, and you, you don't really see, it's so far down the road, down the line, you, you don't see that car off of that assembly line. You have become a machine in this process. That's frustrating labor. Third, a third way that this frustration comes from the outside in. Daily work is disconnected from our legacy. Daily work is disconnected from our legacy. Look at this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes thinks about work And look what he says. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet will they have control over all the fruit of my toil in which I had poured my effort and skill under the sun. This is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all their own, all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun all their days? Their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. You probably understand in particular in those last two lines if you're a small business owner in particular. Do you you have a hard time putting your mind to rest at night because of the work that you're doing? All that labor, all that labor that you're doing and sometime eventually you're going to retire or die and somebody else is going to take over this company. And what are they going to do with it? He's describing here something that I think is, is sad. It's sad when you see businesses close or uh, companies shut their doors. Some people try to stop this. They live in denial of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that someday they're going to have to let go. So uh, they refuse to release control of their companies. That's sad too. Uh, It happens in family businesses. It happens in churches. Uh, Driven by fear, people refuse to let go. And uh, this is... Inevitable of the frustration of life in this world. Those are frustrations that come from the way work is in the world, from the outside in. But the deeper problems are actually on the inside, and we experience frustration from the inside out. See, we're not naturally oriented toward work, in, in a healthy way. People generally fall into one of two camps. Either they value work too much or they don't value work enough. Your disorientation from work fall, probably falls into one of those two categories. In their book, uh, uh, The Gospel at Work, Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger, they, use this, they, they make this wonderful play on English, the English language, and they say that the, one of these two things, one, we either make work an idol... I-D-O-L, as we value work too much. Or we become idle workers, I-D-L-E. Idolatry and idleness. I suppose that works better in a book than when you're speaking, right? Don't be idle or an idle at work. It doesn't work very well. Well, let's talk about idleness at work for, for just a moment. I wonder how easily you are distracted from your job. Um, What it takes to draw you away from your labor. If you sit at a computer all day, um, do you find yourself constantly forwarding emails to people? If you do, please take me off your list. Do you find yourself all day checking Facebook, Um, uh, shopping, reading news sites, what about, um, different than that, being late to work all the time, or being half-hearted at work, or being unprepared for work? You are idle. Now, why are you idle? Maybe you spend the time serving the web because you're looking for something more pleasant, more fulfilling than your job, or you're unprepared, or you're late for work because something else has drawn your attention, and you've forgotten your mandate that your job, you're to be cultivating and subduing and ruling and guarding This is one of the ways that from the inside out we show our disorientation toward work. It's not important enough to us. There's something else that we want. That's valuing work too little. But the problem can also come from making work an idol and and having idolatry at work. Making work what defines you, where you find your self-fulfillment, where you find your self-worth. It defines who you are. And if you ever lose your work, you have nothing left. A classic example of this, I suppose, is uh, men are often targeted with this. What happens when you retire and you come home? Your poor wife. You take all of your managerial skills and you apply it in your house with all sorts of suggestions. And she says to you, I never would have thought of this. All in 30 years of taking care of this home, you're so wise. No wife has ever said that to her husband. All right? Your work defines who you are. It's everything to you. And if you ever lose it, you have nothing left. Uh, The movie Chariots of Fire, you've probably seen it. It's about the Olympian and Christian uh, Eric Little. He was a runner. Uh, In in the movie, there's a contrast made between Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams was one of his classmates, uh, teammates, and competitors and both of them throughout the film share their perspective on, on running and how they think about running. And Harold Abrams said that during a race when the gun goes off, he, has, he said, I have ten lowly seconds to justify my existence. Think of how different that is from uh, Eric Little. Harold Abrams says, I've got to prove that I matter. I prove that I have something to, ma- to offer this world by running as fast as I can. Think about how, though, in contrast, Eric Little said this God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. It's a radically different approach to work. It seems to me, I think, that Eric Little must have read Psalm 147, 10, and 11. Look what it says. His pleasure, God's pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. God does take delight in what he has made. There, there's a contrast here that you're supposed to get. God loves fast horses, and he loves to uh, watch Um, um, people exercise the gifts that he's given them. That's true. But in comparison, what brings him delight is those who revere him and put their hope in his unfailing love. And I wonder if it's true that the most important thing in your life is how fast you can run or how skillfully you can build or how impressively you can draw or how masterfully you can teach uh, or how strategically you can program and not in this delighting in him fearing him. Uh, How do you want to work? I wonder how you want to go to work. Do you want to work as if every project I do justifies my existence? Every lesson plan that I write uh, justifies my existence? Or or do you want to say, God made me skilled. And when I cook, when I teach, when I lead, When I direct, when I paint, I feel his pleasure. Now, how does that happen? How do you move from Harold Abrams to Eric Little? How how do you move from idolatry as work, uh, work as idolatry, to work as worship? We're going to focus on this more next week, but but I just want to give you a foretaste um, like the Bible does in Genesis 3.15. Look at this verse. I read it. It comes right before God speaks to Adam and Eve about the curse and how hard life is going to be for them. He said, They overheard this, God speaking to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, in order for you to work, to move from either idleness or idolatry at work, to work as worship, when I run, I feel his his pleasure, there's this serpent that's going to have to be dealt with. The serpent and all the mess that he introduced into the world. Somebody's going to have to undo what he did. You're going to have to have a different way of living other than living in the world that the serpent made and the world that the serpent uh, designed for you. You're going to have to have something that's going to trump whatever it is you're seeking to get at work or trump whatever it is you're seeking to get, out, get by avoiding work. So God speaks. He speaks about this person who's going to come, who's going to be a descendant of Eve, a child who's going to come. And he's going to do two things. He's going to crush The serpent's head while his heel is being stricken. Jesus, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus who's going to come. This is the first mention in the Bible of the fact that God's going to rescue us. He's going to send Jesus who's going to crush the serpent's head. When you crush a snake's head, it's pretty much over for the snake. How's he going to do it? Jesus is going to come. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to resist every temptation that Satan is going to offer him. He's going to perfectly obey his father. He's going to fulfill the mandate. We'll talk about this next week. He's going to fulfill the mandate that Adam failed to fulfill. And Jesus is going to do it perfectly. He's going to defang Satan. He's going to defang the serpent. How is he going to do it? By destroying, by by taking away Satan's greatest weapon. Satan hates, the serpent hates humanity. So he wants to, and God, so he wants to move humanity into disobedience from God. And then when we disobey, he wants to ask God, God, these creatures that you made, they rebelled against you. You need to get them, punish them, kill them. Jesus comes. And, and he, he dies for us in our place and bears the punishment that we deserve. He, he rips the sword right out of the serpent's hands. Totally defangs him. He has nothing, no weapon anymore because the penalty has already been paid. And then Jesus rose again. And, and he offers life and forgiveness to all who trust in him. You know what's amazing about this story here in Genesis 3? How did Adam show that he believed what God said? What did he do? Right after this section of curses, God, uh, the Bible says that Adam turned to his wife and he named her Eve mother. God says, you're going to have offspring that are going to, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. So what does Adam do? He says, Oh, your mother, there is going to come an offspring. I believe what God says about the offspring that's going to come, that's going to crush Satan's, the serpent's head. Huh. And in due course, due course, for those who trust in him, Jesus will set us free from this curse completely, holy. Not completely and wholly in this life, but he is the bigger reason to live. He's the bigger reason to work. And when you see that, you know what Isaac Watts said about us? You would encounter joy. No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And in that, even when you go to work on a thorny day, there is joy. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that the reality of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is greater, uh, a more significant and abiding truth even than the curse that we feel when we work. as I think, think about this. I know there are men and women in this congregation and we, we vary between which one of these ways that we, we stumble into idleness or into idolatry. Would you exalt the Lord Jesus in our minds and in our hearts uh, to, to reorient us to work? He's the one who, who conquered the curse and will erase the curse someday. So would you, would you change how we think about the frustrations of work? Would you cause us to delight in the Lord Jesus and so work shaped by his Supremacy. Help us uh, tomorrow when we, when we go to work and, and the battles that we'll face and the temptations that we'll have to, to uh, find fulfillment there or to escape into um, time-wasting. Would you help us each to do battles with those things so that we may honor you, the God who works, who created us, called us to work, and fixes the world that we have broken. You are greater than all of the frustrations we will face this week, and we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name that we pray together, saying, Amen.